0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis. I am super psyched to uh, have an opportunity to sit down today uh, with our Artist of the Month for November. Um, Simply one of the greatest trumpet players anywhere in the world. Uh, Without question, one of my favorite trumpet players here in New York, a very dear friend of mine, the great Nick Marchione. Nick has held the lead trumpet chair in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra since uh, 2005, has also been the lead trumpet player of the Birdland Big Band since 2006, uh, toured and recorded extensively with the late Great Prince. Uh, he has uh, played with Michelle Legrand, bs and Aretha Franklin, Phil Woods, has uh, featured prominently as the lead trumpet player on the upcoming CD by Brett Eldridge, an incredible Christmas album that Rob Mounsey arranged. Um, he has performed on countless Broadway shows, including at the age of 19, securing a chair on the uh, the mega-hit producers. Uh, he is a native of Philadelphia. He is, well, how can we say it? He is uh, the person uh, credited with popularizing the cha. Uh, I guess you'd have to say that Maynard was the one who invented it, but certainly Nick has brought it to the people, and uh, we will talk at great length about the cha. Um, he... Uh, my own personal experience uh we go way back but we uh, had some great years uh playing together on a broadway show called memphis that ended up winning a tony award back in 2010 and uh, one of the things that uh, amazed me about nick is uh he's one of these guys who's got phenomenal perfect pitch and a photographic memory i remember we uh, we started the show and i can barely remember my name and address so i'm a year and a half into the thing i'm still reading the music Of course, he had already closed the book after about two weeks and uh, had it completely memorized. He and I both went on to do other shows and left Memphis, and uh, subsequently those shows had closed, and we came back and ended up subbing together on Memphis about two years after uh, we had left, and uh, he still didn't open the book, so... It's a little bit uh, depressing for me, but anyway, he's uh, a great friend. I'm also very honored that he uh, played so beautifully on uh, my CD, Hip Bone Big Band, that came out a couple of months ago. We will be uh, performing live at Subculture on December 4th. If you're around, you get to hear this incredible guy. And without further ado, uh, welcome to uh, Bone to Pick, to Nick Marchion. Thanks so much, Nick, for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for uh, making me feel
0: better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> not possible but but anyway you know what let's jump right in your 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 upbringing and uh, childhood is so rich and and you you uh, as i mentioned you come from philadelphia an incredibly uh, fruitful place to uh, in terms of music and jazz and and brass playing uh, your father was a legendary trumpet player tony he, uh, we were talking about it before the interview this is a man who was a teacher to lee morgan randy brecker bobby malik some amazing musicians came under his tutelage, so and and of course his son Nick Marchion. So Nick, tell us about growing up in Philly and your dad and all those experiences. Uh, well,
1: uh, yeah, you know honestly, I still people say this still to me all the time. Guys that live in New York, uh, or still when I go down and teach at Temple University, so still when I go down and see some of the guys uh, there, guys that were professionals working when I was a little kid and dad would bring me along to all the gigs and I'll still meet random people, just never met them in my life, they'll come up to me on the street or I'll get an email oh, hey I studied with your father in 1958 and blah 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 and I'd love to come see you or come to meet you and it's always very humbling that he touched so many people uh, that whether or not they're still professionals are still have all this great remembrances of him uh, so, in addition to that, my mother is also uh, a pianist, a great pianist. So, both my family, both my parents being these great musicians, uh, was you know, you're a kid, you don't realize how lucky you are mm-hmm. that you know, instead of having like an accountant and a lawyer and being miserable, I got <laughs> two parents that are musicians and swinging. <laughs> so, um, and your well, sister played uh, as well, right? A clarinet. My clarinet, older sister's a clarinet. great clarinet player. Mm-hmm. Uh, She went to Curtis, as my dad did. Uh, And my older brother and my little sister are scientists. Hmm. So, see where the brains went. I've (laughs) killed brain cells. They just keep accruing them, apparently.
0: Well, it is pretty amazing. I mean, I can't even imagine... What it would be like to teach Lee Morgan a private lesson? I mean, what, yeah, what, I mean, what, what do you say to Lee Morgan?
1: <laughs> uh, what do you say to Randy? I mean, <laughs> Randy as well, of you course. Know I mean? No question. Um, of course, I'm not old enough to have ever met Lee, uh, nor did I. I've heard stories of the, of the two of them and their relationship, which was apparently very good because they're not that far off in age. If my dad was alive, he'd be uh, 82. Okay. So they're not. Uh, big, disparate in age, but um, apparently they just got along really well, and when Lee was having some, of course not musical issues, but maybe right. just some more fundamentally trumpet things that he wanted to get better on and resolve, and my father was known as very much a uh, great musician, great player, but a great teacher, like a fix-it man kind of mm. thing. I have much more experience talking to Randy about uh, Philly in that era, and also with my dad. And, you know, Randy is, is great because his comments are so succinct but and dry, but very uh, contained with great information. So uh, talking to him about my dad revealed a lot of uh, personality, mm. shall we say. <laughs>
0: That's great. And Randy's such a, well, he's a genius musician and we're we're all such huge fans of his, but he's also a big ambassador for Philadelphia and and, the the lineage of great players that have uh, come from that great city. So that's uh, very cool. Well, let's jump ahead and talk a little bit about your move to New York. You came here. uh, It's hard to believe. I mean, I remember when everybody was talking to, uh, you know, this young kid, literally a kid who was 18 years old, uh, just moved to New York, Nick Marchion. You got to hear this kid. It's unbelievable. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, but you moved here. Uh, shortly thereafter, within a year, you landed the chair on the producers, which is phenomenal. I mean, I think uh, the only person I can think of that young who had a Broadway uh, position was uh, Wenton when he got the chair at Sweeney Todd. I think he was yeah. 18 or 19. But, uh any rate, talk about, <laughs> talk, talk, yes, uh, talk about talk. Of course, talk about if you would like your memories of, of getting to New York and what I know you went to Manus for uh, a little bit and was it at that time? I know you studied with Vince, the great Vince Pensarella. Was maybe maybe just kind of share your feelings about what it was like diving into the deep end of uh, New York yeah. City?
1: Um, well, I had known since I was uh, very young, probably. 11 or 12 years old, my goal was uh, I wanted to graduate from high school and, well, I didn't have to graduate, but (laughs) who cares? The goal was to be in New York and uh, very naively say, oh, I just want to move to New York and be a working tremble player, having no idea what that meant, what field, what I would be involved in doing. But uh, So when I was uh, in high school, kind of just marking time and, you know, getting the bare minimum of grade point average to pass, uh, I started to uh, realize uh, from other friends of mine who were a little older who had come to New York and started taking lessons with people. Uh, and I had I had known Vince Penzarella before that because Vince and my father were at Curtis together back in the early 50s. Oh, so, okay. Uh, I had known him a little bit and known of him, of course, his reputation. And I said, well, that's who I want to study with because it's not uh, just about what kind of style of music or kind of work I'm going to be doing. It's about just understanding the mechanics of why we do, why what works, works. And Vince is such an amazing teacher and amazing talent and someone who never pulled punches on what he thought about what you were doing. (laughs) Uh, I think my favorite line that he ever gave me was, you know, Nick, you are the most talented trumpet student I've ever had. We're sitting here in a lesson and I'm like, all right, <laughs> and which immediately followed by you are also the laziest person I've ever taught in my life and just <laughs> air out of the balloon but he was right and he was motivating me <laughs> and, uh, um, as a matter of fact I didn't see him too long so I called him up and said hey Mr. Pensarelli, you know, can we, can we go out and, and just catch up and talk because again Vince being from Philadelphia has so much wealth of of the history of that great town as well. And uh, again, he, he picks up where he left off. I hadn't seen him uh, in maybe eight years at that point. And he picks me up styling in the black tinted window Mercedes two-door. Nice. So he picks me up. He, as, as I'm just about to open the door, he rolls the window down. And I was a lot heavier in my youth, as you remember. First words of him, I have not seen this man in eight years. First words of him, ah! You're not fat anymore," <laughs> I said. "Hi, Mr. Penzarella. Thanks. Good to see you too. So you finally took my advice, because at the end of our lessons, he'd always he lived on 84th and West End back then. He'd always opened the door, and as I'm walking out with my case, he'd go, "Nick, remember, you walk by the McDonald's, not into it." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, so that was uh, Vince. <laughs> all this to be said that he never pulled punches and was such a great inspiration as." a teacher, as a man. Uh, We we talked, as much as we played in lessons, we would talk about uh, music, uh, experiences, life, women. Mm. Yeah, leave it at that.
0: Yes. Well, you do have a certain... And "Wow!" with the women I have noticed over the years <laughs> but, oh. uh, and I mean that in the most positive way of course yeah, I'm still you know, paying the alimony. Well, yeah, that, uh, I've heard of that happening um, <coughs> anyway um so well let's talk a little bit about uh getting the producers. That must have been an exciting call. I know I think John Miller was a big time uh, great contractor here in yeah. New York. Uh, I think John was the contractor for that show, and uh, what was that like like just when that
1: uh, it was
0: when that happened for you
1: well. You know, it started with um, when I finally decided to move to New York uh, and uh, a couple of of guys from Philly, great trumpet players and musicians said, oh man, you know, because these were guys that um, went to college with uh, University of the Arts, with PCPA back then, or Temple, uh, that knew Earl Gardner and Don Downs, uh, Mm. Don who also studied with my dad, and said, give these guys a call, you know, just whatever, see if you can hang out or go to dinner, or take a lesson, so I did that, and um, I started, I uh, had a few meetings with Don, and he asked to hear me play, and I played for him, and I was subbing occasionally on a band that Glenn Drews was in, and Glenn heard me play, and said, you should come watch, they were playing Fossy at the time, okay. uh, and they said, uh, Glenn said, why, why don't you come in and watch the book, I came in and watched the book, and then Don asked to hear me play, and we played, and then they offered me to come in and sub a few times. So I had subbed on, uh, it was a four-trumpet show and the fourth player, Glenn's book, you had to go play that uh, Harry James solo uh, from oh, the, right, the Sing right. Sing Sing at yeah. the Benny Goodman concert uh, on stage. And I hadn't done that yet, nor had I played lead yet subbing. And uh, another friend of mine, uh, a trumpet player, um, John Chidoba was mm-hmm. playing lead on the road version of the show. Okay. And the lead player had to go on stage and play that solo. So, um, John had to take a week off, and they were scrambling to find someone, and I never forget exactly, well, photographing memory, I guess. Here, I'm, <laughs> I'm pulling into, it's the, it's the summer, and, uh, and I'm pulling into uh, a, some department store with my mom and my older sister. Cell phone rings. StarTech, as I remember. The old mm. StarTechs, I love them. Wow. So cell phone rings. Hello, Nick, this is John Miller. Okay. Hi. How are you? I have <laughs> beautiful youth, ignorance, and innocence. I guess I had no idea who he was. So I said, "Okay. How are you?" He says, um, "Yes, I know you're studying at Fosse. I got your name from the guys playing there. Um, the tour is starting uh, in two days in Hartford for a week. Can you go out and cover it?" <laughs> this was the start of the my my college semester. So I'm like, ah. Uh, I'll tell you what, can I think about it and give you a call back? Again, having no idea. <laughs> and I could almost tell uh, there was a, a slight change in John's voice, and he goes, oh, all right, yeah, you got an hour. Click. And I'm like, okay. So here I am walking down the aisles pushing a cart for my mom. And <laughs> like, So what do you think? I mean, is it worth missing theory class for this? Uh, <laughs> so I called him back and said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Drive up, do the rehearsal, and... Uh, I guess I did well enough so on the drive back to New York after the week I called up John and I got his uh his voicemail I said you know hey John thanks a lot for the call it was a lot of fun um hope you're well talk to you soon and then I think it was within within two or three hours I was still driving back to New York he called me up and said hey so uh there's a show coming in with the producers would you like to do and I said okay <laughs> so that you know,
0: you made quite an impression. Yes, without,
1: without question. Yes, an idiot basically, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, it was uh, obviously the right thing to do, was saying yes. But um, it worked out very well, and then that was quite an experience, just starting a show, whereas everyone around me was already a seasoned professional at not only being in town and, and working, but also playing shows. So here I am, trying to act like I'm not wide-eyed and ask the stupidest question possible
0: i remember so well i mean uh now you're still a very very young man but uh, a seasoned veteran at oh, even at basically. that age but uh i remember uh so uh, so many people talking like what who, who is this guy how did he get the show you know and black man and and clearly now we all know uh, the the talent level uh, uh was the Cheers umbrella over, <laughs> over everything but uh but uh and you know what a what a great show i mean for those of you who don't know when you do a broadway show in new york it's it's always uh it's it's, it's kind of the lifeblood of the work uh, scene in terms of the freelance work in new york so we're all uh very grateful and and uh, eager and and happy to get the call to do these shows and sometimes they uh they might last a month or two and uh, sometimes they might last a year or two and it, once in a great while you'll get one like the producers that'll last uh five or six years i think it lasts six years, six right? years yeah and, and occasionally there'll be something like that's running now, like a Hamilton or Book of Mormon that you can see is going to run for a very long time. But that's uh, that's uh, pretty rare that that happens. So that's very cool that uh, your yeah. first show was uh, was such a such a big hit. Um, you know, let's let's kind of shift gears. It's something that I really have been anxious to talk to you about in this interview. But uh, it's the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. Um, you. you uh, we were, were tapped by the band to, to be the lead trumpet player in 2005, and mm-hmm. what an honor. I mean, the lineage of great uh, lead trumpet players that have gone through that band is uh, uh, incredible to, to say the yeah. least. Um, I know for those of you who haven't heard the Vanguard Band uh, recently, go as soon as you possibly can, and whatever it costs you to get to hear this band, do it. I, I went, uh, it's been a couple years now, and I feel like I should go. Uh, on a regular basis. This band, it plays at such an incredibly high level and it's inspiring from note one when you hear them. Uh, the ensemble playing is impeccable. Uh, of course, the music is uh, the arrangements are amazing. The soloists are world class. It's uh, second yeah. to no other ensemble anywhere in the world and uh, certainly one of uh, one of our crown jewels in terms of the New York uh, jazz scene, uh, and all due respect to the other incredible bands, Maria Schneider and all the other bands in, in New York that uh, do put out such an amazing uh, product. To, I hate to use that word, referring to an artistic endeavor, but uh, but at any rate, um, talk to us about that. I know in, because of our friendship, I know that you have uh, said to me many times how that was the band that you really wanted to play with. Mm-hmm. And when I hear you play with that band, it sounds like if Thad was alive today, you'd be the lead trumpet player. It's just it's such a fit, oh, it's such an you. incredible fit. But um, maybe just talk about, um, and, and I'll kind of throw some things at you. Sure. It's such a wide question, I know, but, but um, talk about start playing with that band, what you guys are doing now, Thad, the lineage of lead trumpet players, just kind of wherever you want to go with your sure. thoughts
1: about the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. Well, I'll tell you, um, I have to start a little bit sooner. Uh, it, it is a story I've told many times, and it's, uh, it's totally true, of course. But, you know, when you're a kid uh, and Christmas comes and you can't wait, you know. Uh, so here I am uh, about to open my Christmas gifts, and we had to wait, you know, until the parents <laughs> got up. I ruined that tradition several years earlier, so now you've had to wait. And uh, I think I was third grade. And so I start opening up stuff that I think looks like video games or a G.I. Joe, whatever. Uh, So Walkman. Okay. Cassette. Uh, Clifford Brown, Max Roach. Mm. Okay. Uh, Chet Baker with strings. Okay. (laughs) Dizzy Gillespie, Big Band, Groovin' High. And I'm like, that sounds funny. My dad's standing over me, of course, you know, like thinking, right, I'm going to get it and be like, oh, this is him. And I just look at him. I'm like, what is this It's open hoping for an Eagles uniform <laughs> right yeah. where's my Randall Cunningham jersey so and, I, and all he said was he goes look listen to it you're either going to like it you're going to hate it what's the worst that can happen so needless to say of course I listened to it and became enamored with all three of those trumpet players and then the big band thing and then he started steadily feeding me more big band records and more small group records various guys my dad was a huge Dexter Gordon fan as I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so it wasn't what I started doing was the the meager uh, allowance I would get was starting by, you know, go to whatever record store and just see cassettes and just look for Big Band. And uh, Even though I wasn't always sure what I was buying, it was still Big Band. So, you know, you're a kid, I wasn't really hip to Woody yet or Buddy or Thad and Mel or Basie. I'd heard the names in abstract as guys would talk about them around me, the older professionals, but I hadn't experienced it, so I started experiencing it, and then really the man I have to credit now uh, was my eighth grade band director who um, is a trumpet player as well, retired now, lucky. <laughs> uh, but he had at school, uh, our his room, his office was in the basement below the auditorium, and you'd walk in and there'd be there were easily 300 cds there and that was just mm. the stuff that he brought from home he was mm-hmm. he was a great listener and once he i guess saw how interested i was in it started giving me records and he was the first person who ever gave me a Thad and mel record oh wow and i heard it and it was unlike anything i ever heard before and i went that's it and i was like where, where, where are they from what do they do and he explained the whole thing and he owned uh... It had just come out, I think, in the mid-90s. The, uh, the solid state, the complete solid state recordings. And he just went, I'm trusting you with this. Do not. And I'm like, okay, I promise, I promise. I went home and man, over a weekend, I drove everybody in the house nuts. I just was cranking it and just trying to... F- that was the first time I started trying to figure out the lead parts. And first time I had really uh, started saying, you know, Snooky Young, Jimmy Nottingham, you know, all these players and of course the writers you know Thad and Meyer and Garnett Brown so I just became enamored with it and then once I knew that the band was still in existence and it was that this was even though I said my main goal was to move to New York and make a living my life goal at that point from the time I was in eighth grade on was I want to play in that band Mm. having no idea that it would actually come to fruition at Mm -hmm. a certain point so I move up here and I you know it was going down every Monday, you know. It was like, Earl, hi. Earl, <laughs> hi. And one day, I just... He just said, hey, uh, you want to sub in the band? And I, you know, um, was glad I didn't, you know, pass out or something. I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I started subbing uh, initially on third and then played second. And then uh, after a little while, started subbing on lead. But I was so familiar with the music by that point, And I had the majority... Of all the recordings, the the great recordings of Central Park North, that record, uh, Sweet for Pops, the stuff that I could physically play when I was younger, I had memorized. You know, I used to play along with the It was one of my big things. And kids, play along with records. I cannot stress that enough. Play (laughs) along with records. Uh, And that's what I was doing when I was home. And so I moved up. And even though, of course, the style of the band had changed, uh, at least I had a pretty solid foundation of I knew... When I was supposed to come in at least and I knew what the notes were and and the spirit of the band from the beginning So and of course hearing the band I would go down I'd try to go down almost every Monday if I could for months and just hear it. So
0: What a great uh, also a great lesson for for all of us, but for young folks, especially like perseverance. I mean, that's That's a big thing and uh, and you know, uh just to talk a little to, to me, like Dad. I mean, I'm such a fan of so many writers, and uh, Bob Mincer comes to the top of my list, who has been so yeah. inspirational to me. And I think Bob would, not to put words in his mouth, but I think he would say that Dad was a tremendous influence on him. I think he influenced all of the the great modern big man writers, you know. And yeah. and um, what was very interesting, our our great videographer and Kent Smith, who's also a great trumpet player, uh, and uh, contributed. Trumpet playing and and uh, and video work to our uh, hip Bone big band CD was telling uh, me a couple weeks ago about the story about how uh, the Thad and Mel band came to being and the fact that that Count Basie had rejected uh, the charts that Thad had written for Count Basie's band. So maybe you could just kind of talk about that a little bit sure. and maybe segue into you know Thad being just such a seminal writer for. I mean, he really brought hard bop into the in that language and that harmonic vocabulary into to the big band from the small group and maybe you could just kind
1: of express ideas
0: about both of those things
1: well yeah um, so what happened was and Thad had written charts for Basie um, uh, up to that point he wrote uh, a great blues called the Deacon he wrote uh, for their performance uh, when they played in London for the Queen uh, HMS, I believe, is what mm. Her Majesty. Mm-hmm. I think it's HMS, or maybe I'm just quoting, uh, you know, ships at this point. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but he he had written several charts for the band, and then Basie had commissioned him to say write a record for the band. So that is where the story begins: as he wrote these tunes, and they rehearsed them, and Basie basically said, "Man, these tunes are great. It's just not the sound of the of my band." So, keep them, and quite frankly, you should consider starting your own band. And 50 years later, you know, here we are. Incredible. Those tunes were Big Dipper, Lowdown. I believe Backbone was one. I think of That's Freedom, Hmm. the Hank Jones tune that he ended up arranging uh, was one. I I just wrote it, and that was that. What an incredible story, And, you know, he met Mel. Uh, also, there's a great book that Kent and I were talking about, uh, "A View from the Back of the Band," that Chris Smith, who subs, uh, a sub drummer in the band, wrote, and it really chronicles Mel's life. But one of the things it talks about is how they met, which was Thad was with Basie, and Mel's playing drums with Stan, and they kind of ran into each other, and they really admired each other and dug each other, and said, "Oh yeah, if we're ever you know living in the same place, you know, we should start a band." I mean, how random is that? In the late '50s, and then fast forward several years, they're both living in New York, and boom, they put together an all-star band. Yeah. Um, the second half of your question, which was what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say this. like
0: um, When I heard the band a couple of years ago, and, uh, I was just blown away by how great the ensemble sounded. I mean, the solos are so great. I mean, I could sit there for a yeah. year and not get tired. I mean, it's just, you got yeah. Richie Perry and Scott Wendell and Dick Oates and Terrell and, uh, and, and everybody. I mean, yeah. the, and the trombone, so it's just like, it's just world-class, every every aspect of it. But the uh, the ensemble playing is so great, and you guys are still playing all those classic Thad charts, mm-hmm. and they sound as fresh today as they ever have, you know? And it, yeah. to me, like, I was just curi- really curious as... Do you as being the lead trumpet player, the lead voice in the ensemble um, what's your perspective on that writing and how how just kind of how it's you know uh, not only has it remained viable, it's still like a total inspiration to everybody who wants to write for a big band and, and so, listens
1: to a big band well, actually that two things just popped in my head before I even kind of really delve into that question one time was a conversation uh, After the second set I was having with Jim McNeely, our great pianist and composer in residence. And Jim started in the band in 78 uh, with Thad and Mel and then played for several years and then left the band for a little bit and then came back. Uh, And Jim has written two records for the band as well as some other compositions here and there. But I remember Jim saying this to me as he said when uh, he started writing uh, and he said, even more than that, he said the first time... He, Jim said, this is actually very funny, the reason that he wanted to move to New York was he was living in Chicago, where he grew up, and he's driving this car, he's got the radio on, and Don't Get Sassy comes on. <laughs> and Jim said, it was just amazing, and he's listening to it, and he goes, New York seems like a pretty fun place. I think I should move there. <laughs> like, that's the... you know. So yeah. Yeah, that's the reason Jim came. But Jim said this very uh, poignant thing, I think. Jim said, once... Thad and Mel came out, and you started to hear Thad's writing. He said, you had to make a very conscious choice. He said Thad was so influential, you either had to go with it, or you just had to literally completely ignore it and stop listening to his compositions Mm. if you wanted to try to truly find your own voice because it was so pervasive. Mm. Not to say, of course, there were other great writers. uh, I love Bill Finnegan. I love Brooke Meyer. uh, But, of course, Mm. I thought it was a very poignant statement by, by Jim. Um and also, um, yes, I know Bob loved uh probably still does love. I, like you said, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Thad's music and we still play Bob wrote a record for the band, the music of Herbie Hancock, that was recorded live at Montreux Jazz Festival, probably mm. I think it was 1980, mm. 81 maybe. Um, we still play a lot of those compositions. Mm-hmm. They're great. Yeah. But you can you can hear a little bit of the influence, you know, just it was so pervasive, it was so great. Um, you know, play and lead in that music is so i mean i'm honored to have uh dick oates play lead alto and and getting to play with dick all the time
0: yeah the best Um, no question
1: i mean for my money the best lead alto player period ever yeah i would agree (laughs) uh and uh you know he said we we were doing a clinic one time with the band and he said uh, it was oh yeah you know and Playing with Nicky, you know, we lock up so well to get on the We lock up so well together, and it's just such a pleasure to play with him. And I'm sitting there going, "Sorry." <laughs> so then it was my turn to talk, and it was very truthful of me. And I said, "Well, I said yes. Uh, I would agree with Dick. You know, we lock up so well. The reason for that is, is because I've pretty much stolen all of his stuff." <laughs> and people laughed, and I was like, "No, I'm I'm serious. You know, I, I often say, and this applies to this music." Um, my five biggest influences on, of lead trumpet playing uh, over the years—only two of them are trumpet players. There's Snooky Young, of course, and there's Al Porcino for different reasons, which we can go into later if you like. There's Sinatra, mm. the old man who you worked with quite extensively, Sarah Vaughan, mm. and Dick Oates. It's mm-hmm. a pretty good quintet right there. And, I, <laughs> and and the reason I I'm sure some people are kind of Maybe questioning why I would name a lead alto player as one of my biggest influences, but we all have um, each instrument. Right has our our natural tendencies. Um, sax players will tend to scoop into a note instead of just attack it head on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, hey. um, Bone players can have the end. no offense, you know the, the that kind of stuff. And trumpet players can wait. What just be I don't know. know. <laughs> Call <Panko>. Uh <laughs> And trumpet players can just, well, be lunkheads. But no, we have our stylistic things that we do because it lends itself to the instrument. So part of the thing that I really started to to try to teach myself was, I'm playing with Dick and I'm hearing him do these things that are very saxophonistic that I loved, how they would Mm -hmm. sound on top of a sax solo or just in the section playing lead. I said, man, I don't hear trumpet players do that. I want to learn how to do that. So I just sat at home and drove everybody nuts. (laughs) <laughs> and tried to figure out how to do this stuff. So. And that's why his natural phrasing, and the reason I say Frank and, and Sarah and also Alan and Snooky, but just, it's so natural. It's so singing. Um, Vince Penzerella and my father used to say this all the time. Um, they would listen to singers. They were forced to listen to singers growing up. So, in addition to all the great music I heard, I was listening to singers growing up, not only jazz, but in the operatic scene as well, and I was forced to uh, soul-fedge the Pasquale Bona book before I was allowed to play the trumpet, because it was about singing and having this trumpet or this brass instrument in our hand, but we're singing through it, we're not letting the instrument dictate what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to playing Thad's music, we're talking about someone who's writing from the perspective of a great jazz player, uh, a great writer, the harmonic and bebop knowledge like you said, bringing that to that vein. But also, Thad heard very out lines. When Mm -hmm. he soloed, his lines were great, but a little different than anybody before him and quite frankly anybody since. And he wrote like that. So to execute his lines, and I hate to use the word execute, to play the music, you really have to not only have an understanding, in my opinion, of where he came from and how he heard, I own all this small group records, uh, listening to those records and hearing where he came from, I mean, that's how he's writing for the band. So to understand that you want to have, even though it's harmonically dense and difficult and angular, you need to make it seem like it's just flowing Mm -hmm. out of you. That, to me, is one of the greatest challenges.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that
1: was like... Sorry, that was an a- incredible
0: answer. No, like you, that was so. Uh, There's so much great advice like to be pulled from that. That was uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, fantastic. I'm, my head's hurting, so yeah. excuse me for yeah, a moment. Please yeah, please do that. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> um, ah! one of your other. I mean, you've worked with so many people, but certainly another uh, incredible artist that you're uh, uh,
1: widely associated with is a lady. Elated- you for a moment? I'm yes. sorry, actually, because I didn't answer your question fully. And, yeah, and wait, sir, we'll answer. edit that out, right? <laughs> Uh, no, uh, is Mikey, we're talking about the, the lineage of the band. This is one of those bands, there's been so few turnover. And, and part of also why it's incredibly humbling for me, um, you look at the lead alto chair, there's been Jerome Richardson, Jerry Dodgen, and Dickos. <laughs> Three lead alto for players 50 in years. 50 years. It's good to trumpet. Um, of course, the records vary, because back in the day when there were uh, there's more record dates, maybe you could make it, maybe you couldn't make it, blah, blah, blah. But really, there's been, with very few exceptions, Snooky Young, Al Porcino, John Faddis, Earl Gardner, and me. Right. Five right. guys in 50 years. Yeah. Um, also, very good retention. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mel Lewis, and then when Mel passed... Um, Dennis McCrell, the great Dennis McCrell who we just worked with. So awesome, yeah. I love. Uh, Danny D'Imperio did it for a little bit. And then John Riley, four mm-hmm. drummers in 50 I mean, yeah. it's the band, part of the reason I think the sound of the band has remained so unique and so consistent is that the personnel has remained so unique and mm-hmm. consistent.
0: hmm Absolutely, and and not to ignore our trombone brethren, but John Mosca has been uh, nope. held a, no. <laughs> held the position for for years and years. I mean, he dates back to the, the Thad era. Yes, no, uh, uh, Douglas Proviance, of course, a great great bass trombone. Uh, you've had you've had John time.
1: Mosca since 1975. Douglas joined in 77.
0: Uh, you need to bone up on your details a little bit, if I, if I can well, say so. Let's, 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 Here, I'm well. bone up right now. <laughs> well let's let's totally shift gears and talk about uh the late great prince um i still it's like uh I, I, I was always a fan of the music I wasn't like a rabid fan but i th- to see him perform was one of the most amazing things and uh, um sadly we lost him this year uh, i was i was sitting in the in Phil Magnati's studio mixing our hip bone big man c d and uh, came on c n n which we had on all the time yeah. to just keep our mind in something <laughs> else and uh, said he passed away. I was just like, how can that possibly be? Um, and sadly, he's gone. He, his contribution to music is like Mozart. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, can you talk about just your experience with him? What, uh, what he obviously meant a lot to you to play with him, but I'm, and I'm sure it meant a lot to him that he had you in, in, in the band. But um, what are your kind of lasting memories of, uh, of him as a musician and as a person?
1: Um, the whole experience, and I mean this in the truest sense of the form, was amazing. And there would be several times I would use the word wow Mm
2: -hmm.
1: (laughs) in every context you could possibly use it in. But it was genuinely an experience. It it came to pass by um, a friend of mine and a great uh, writer and trumpet player, uh, Phil Lasseter. Phil... um, Writes a lot and arranges a lot for um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, rhythm and blues artists, uh, gospel artists, and he's a great writer. Um, and when Phil moved to New York, which was maybe six years ago, he called up a mutual friend of ours, Michael League, who's the guy who uh, is the bass player and, and the leader of Snarky Puppy, that great mm-hmm. band. Sure. And said, hey, uh, you know, I need to record some lead drummer players on these tracks. Do you know anybody in New York? And Mike said, me. So that's how Phil and I got to know each other. And then uh, so he started using me to record these tracks. And Prince, who was very eclectic musically and always listening, Mm. just like they say. And it is true. He was writing every day. He was listening every day, trying to find different anything. Mm. And so he heard some tracks and said, man, these horn tracks are great who wrote them, and he found out, he got Phil's contact info, he called Phil and said, I want you to put together a horn section. Uh, And Phil called me and said, would you like to do it?" yeah. Hmm. (laughs) No, sorry, (laughs) I'm unavailable. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I said yes, and actually, Prince then had the idea that he saw a video of the horn section Phil put together playing, and he really liked that, and he saw another horn section that he really liked. And he just went, as only he can. So why don't we just have two horn sections? So that's why there was eleven <laughs> horns on that band. And it was amazing. Because then now we're talking about and the, the horn section was a uh, five saxes, four trumpets. Sorry, two bones, but you know. No gig is perfect. Uh, and um bass trombone? No. Oh, okay. No, we're good. We had two okay. berries, you know, we just you know
0: Oh oh wow, okay.
1: Haven't played the same note and tattooed in anyway, so it's perfect. <laughs> So, uh, when we, we first went, I'll never forget this, because we get called, uh, it was August of 2012. I was playing um, Porky and Bess at the time. Uh, and uh, they said, hey, can you come out for a week next week? Like, we just want to do some preliminary rehearsals. I said, yeah, sure, it'd be great. So, we all get together, the horns are figuring stuff out. Yeah, well, that week turned into three and a half weeks which was my first introduction to the free-flowedness of Prince. <laughs> um, and, you know, the first time we met him was hilarious. Um, I digress, and feel free to cut this out later. <laughs> but so uh, the lead trombone player, Roy Agee, who's a dear friend and a great player. Absolutely, yeah. uh, we were rehearsing in, I love it, the Blue Room at Paisley Park. It was blue because the carpet was blue and the walls were blue. And this was the most comfortable carpet I've ever stood on in my life. It was unbelievable. I felt bad blowing my spit on it. <laughs> but I did. And Stay so true to yourself. I like that. I'm a classy guy. <laughs> so we agreed. The horns were just rehearsing arrangements for some of the classic tunes, 1999, uh, D.M., uh, what was it? Uh, DMSR medley and you know, all these kinds of things. And hey guys, let's take ten. So Roy needed to use the restroom, but he didn't necessarily know where he was going. <laughs> Paisley Park. So here we are. This is Paisley Park, and instead of making a right and heading towards the restrooms. Oh, and by the way, when you walked into Paisley Park, there was the motorcycle from Little from uh, from Purple Rain. The video, like there it was. Uh, with the wow. key in the ignition, so I'm an adult. I didn't do anything. Uh, but so Roy made a left down the hallway, and apparently it's dark. Uh, fast forward, twenty minutes go by. We're all waiting for Roy. Like, where did this guy go? Maybe he's not feeling well. Or something. He comes back in with this look on his face that is denoted something not good happened. <laughs> he said, Roy, what happened? He goes, uh, I just found Prince. We had not met Prince yet at this point. Okay. So what do you mean he's found Prince? Well, there was a little breakfast station, and he opened. He went down a dark corridor, opened a door, the lights on, CNN is on, and there's Prince in his pajamas eating some cereal. <laughs> and Roy says, Roy says, he doesn't. He goes, I'm just frozen. I go, How did Mr. Prince? <laughs> Prince apparently just laughed. and was like, how are you? I'm "I'm good. You watching the news? Yes, I'm watching the news. I like news. Like he was just, you know, so stunned that this was happening. He didn't know what to do, which I wouldn't either. Yeah. And so Roy said, Prince is looking at me and goes, you guys sound good. I'll be down to hear you in a little while. (laughs) I.E. So, Damn, great. so that's why it took him all this time and he came back and he was just like... I, I just And he said, he was, well, it's been a pleasure working with you guys. I think I'm <laughs> fired. You know? So Prince comes and we start rehearsing and just from the, the very first moment, it was amazing. I mean, the man was, of course, talented, but he heard everything. Mm. And he knew so specifically what he wanted with the music. Um, he could... For lack of a better term, punch stuff up immediately. Like we'd, we'd be in rehearsal, we'd be arranging stuff, and the horns would play it. And then he'd come up and he'd say, "Horns, you know what? Why don't we try that?" And he would go to the keyboard and he would play a certain voicing and a certain rhythm that was just slightly different, but it made it kick that much more. And he would go to the first guitar, and he would say, no, just give me the guitar. It's easier for me." To... And he would do it, and they go, "Oh, okay." Second guitar, Bass, hmm. Keyboards, hmm. And he would literally change. Wow all of it right there and he goes all right let me just hear that real quick three four and you play it and it was just amazing all these little minute changes that he heard it just made it elevated to the next level it was so inspiring
0: that's so amazing that is uh beyond incredible i mean you know it's funny like as us uh, nowadays especially with classical musicians there's oh there's no mozarts and you know these are the Mozart's, you know, yeah. the, the princes of the world, and and there are very few that are in the pop music world, but occasionally they come along that are obviously older than Prince, but Stevie Wonder is another one that oh, has yeah. that kind of same. They're just hearing the entire thing, just like, just like Mozart did and Bruckner did, and uh, and uh, it's and 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 of course that was popular music of its day, so uh, yeah. uh, important to kind of. Uh, to note that but, but thanks for sharing the story about roy that is hysterical it's like i can imagine
1: the, uh, the the terror that was in his mind like could oh. he see his for the first time. oh man it's a, you know I, something else that you and i joke about all the time I mean, the first time that we had an alone moment um it wasn't really meant to be an alone moment <laughs> but i'm turning the corner at paisley just being me and it's you know like just acting like a child and i just turn the corner coming out of the restroom and Comes a corner. I'm just, just about to make the left. And I just go ah! <laughs> and as I'm turning, there's Prince right in front of me. He just goes, "Hi, Prince." And so all of a sudden, I'm whispering, I'm like, hi, Prince." It's a, I, I just have to uh, excuse me. <laughs> ran away, you know. And he just started laughing, like you know.
2: Well, that's
1: nice first idea. interaction. And
0: uh, well, at least he hadn't uh, predict the can But let's move on. From let's that. move on yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, it's been a while. Let's talk about. Uh, some some of the more you know it was great to like get your insight on both these two you know very very uh, cornerstone gigs in your career both both the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra and and Prince. Let's talk about some of the things that you look for as a lead player. I want to ask you a few different questions, but um, in particular, and it doesn't have to be a long thought, and and I know you'll be uh, very direct about it. But what do you look for? I mean, you play with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, you play with. Terrell Stafford, you play with Scott Wenholt, two of the greatest musicians who ever played a trumpet. Yeah, Great at whatever they pick up to do, but they're certainly two of the greatest section players, in addition to being world-class solos. You get to play with these guys regularly, but what do you look for in a section player that's playing for you for the first time?
1: That's an excellent question, uh, and I will say this. I think part of the reason that, well, I mean, I can't espouse the great qualities of Terrell and Scott enough. One of the first qualities that comes to mind though is selflessness. Hmm. Here are two great musicians and great jazz players playing third and fourth trumpet in a big band. And they give it to me. And when I say that, I mean, they support me volume-wise, pitch-wise, style-wise, the color of your sound. Um, they support all of this. They're they're very giving. I know I've experienced in my career, thankfully not a lot, but guys that they're jazz players and that's their focus. So when they're not soloing, they just, they don't really want to be involved in the ensemble. Right. Whereas these two guys, it's almost more important to them. Well, actually that's a lie. It is more important to them to be involved in the ensemble and make sure the ensemble sounds good as a whole and then when they get their moment, Mm. they do what they do which is amazing. right? Um, what I look for is innate musicianship. I want you to keep your ears open at all times. Um, I'll have um, subs to a- any big band or, or situation I, I play in if I'm playing lead and they'll look at a phrase and they'll say oh is that off on four is that off on one or is it, like, what are you doing there and I'm not trying to vibe them. I'm not trying to make them feel bad. But I just look at them and I say, you'll hear it. (laughs) Because I really mean that. When I say to me, like, if if you write uh, the minus sign four off on four, most people are going to approach that note and they're going to tongue stop it or they're going to crescendo into it or something like that. I don't want that. I want guys that are going to have their ears open to hear Are we breath releasing this? Are we crescendoing? Are we decrescendoing? Is there a little vibrato possibly? Ears. Ears always open. In my, as far as a sound concept for a section, um, ideally I want color. I want a vast range of color. I don't want, I tend to have a brighter sound. I don't want three other guys with brighter sounds. What I would generally enjoy is the second trumpet player to have a brighter sound, or certainly be able to be capable of having that brighter sound. And the third and the fourth guys, I want a more mid-range to almost dark sound, so that you're getting this overtone palette, especially in the different registers we're going to play in. So, um, what I love about Scott and Terrell, if we're going to use the Vanguard as an example, and uh, Tanya Darby on second trumpet, Tanya has a great sound and, and is similar to mine, and Scott and Terrell can color their sounds in various ways but like generally, they're more mid-range, and really thick, beautiful sounds. So that basically, it makes my tea kettle sound sound a little less tea kettle.
0: <laughs> I don't think I would describe your sound as tea kettle, but oh, two inches, huh? Um, that's great advice, and it's. I hope uh, I hope all of, uh, especially the younger players out there, uh, heed that advice because I think. Uh, a lead player, the quality of uh, Nick Marchione is, is definitely looking for a certain something from from the players around them. And it's, yeah. as it's, you just described, you're playing with the best of the best. So um, you're used to that and you're expecting that. Okay. Now, just uh, putting the uh, shoe on the other foot now, you, typically you're the lead player, but I've heard you sound phenomenal playing second and third trumpet. Sometimes in New York, you'll be you know we've got other great lead trumpet players. Tony Cadlick, sure, yeah, yeah. of course, comes to mind. Jim Hines. You mentioned John Tadoba, The various folks that, uh, that do a, Don Downs do a fantastic job. But I know I know you've worked a lot with Tony. Whenever I hear you playing in the section with Tony, uh, it just sounds fantastic. You're both incredible players. Well, of you. course, it's a great uh, match. But what do you uh, look for in a lead player when you're playing when you're playing second or third
1: trumpet? Um. <laughs> Well, let's start with some of the guys you mentioned. I mean, uh, yes, Tony and I play together a lot, and we hook up very well together. But when I'm playing under Tony, and we've played enough together now, I know what he likes. Mm -hmm. I know what he likes in the color of a sound, volume-wise, everything. But um, even still with Tony, I will ask, we'll play one or two tunes, and I'll just look over and say, is it cool? Do you need something from me that I'm not get doing or should i do something less. And i think that's very important. It's you know when when you uh when you playing an ensemble especially if you're not playing lead in any section, you have to check your ego at the door. Hmm. And as you know in this town, you'll play lead on a bunch of dates and then all of a sudden you'll be under maybe the great, you know, Keith O'Quinn or Larry Farrell or somebody like that. You have to check your ego maybe and i'm not saying those guys but in anywhere in the world and in any situation, you might play with somebody who plays great. They're not going to play it how you play it. Would necessarily hear it on lead, but that's not your call at this point. Mm-hmm. You need to make that person feel comfortable, and that's what I do. Even though I've played with Jim uh, Jim Hines a bunch, or John Shadoba or Bob Milliken, the great Bob. Of Milliken. course, yeah. Uh, I but should have mentioned no. him straight up. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I'll always ask them. Am, am I? Giving you what you need, or should I change? Because it's not about me, it's about the ensemble. Your job as a section player is to not only make the lead player feel comfortable, in my opinion, but enhance the sound of the ensemble. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I just always ask the guys, What do you need? What am I doing? What am I not doing? And sometimes it could be a, a variety of things, it could be a color of sound, it could be pitch, it could be time, it could be you're playing a little too loud, a little too soft, whatever it is. But personally, and this is uh, the way I grew up, because I grew up with the older school cats, they were not afraid, just like I said about Vince Pensarella, I got to play, I was very lucky enough to play some gigs with the great Johnny Bello. And (laughs) I love this, actually. I was mortified at the time, but now I really dig it. And (laughs) Rest in peace. I wish he was still alive, so i could give him a hug and just say, "I'm so sorry." And for those of you who don't know Johnny
0: Bello, and I know his name because of you and you telling me stories, but one of the one of the great uh, Philadelphia lead trumpet players, and yes. did all the recording work. And not to cut you off, no. but, but just for it, I I was enlightened by by uh, your knowledge about Johnny Bello. But uh, just so yeah, Johnny knows between
1: is. Philadelphia and Atlantic City, and also he lived in New York in the '50s. He's um he's part of that great section, uh, the Ted McNabb and Company. Uh, record from the 50s. It's Bernie Glow and him, uh, Irby. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great band. Ollie Johnson, I believe, is playing drums. a great band. But um, he was also Judy Garland's lead trumpet player for several years. But so fast forward. So here I am, 17 years old, and <laughs> playing third trumpet. And he called everybody Babe. That was his thing. He would say your name, Mike Babe. <laughs> so... He said, three tunes go by, and we're, you know, it's a society date, we're wearing tuxes, and, uh, and he, he says, Nick, babe, can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah, John, I hear you great, sounds great, you know, I'm like a little kid, you know, sounds great. He goes, okay, so you can hear me? Goes, yeah. He goes, okay, well, if you can hear me, I'm just curious, why the, aren't you with me? And I was like, huh? (laughs) And then all I hear is two, three, four, next. (laughs) And I was so freaked out. But it was great because it was that directness that I grew up with that I actually really appreciate if I'm playing under a lead player. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you need. It's, you know, this is my job. But I loved that. I mean, it was a little biting, of course. But I love that story (laughs) because he was just saying, you are not giving me what you should be giving me. Do this.
2: Yeah.
0: I loved it. Wow. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, I think, again, you know, for, for all of us, it does, it's not a matter of uh, youth or age or whatever, but so important. I mean, for a player of your stature to be approaching playing in the section like that, that's exactly what it's got to be. And that's what hmm. makes the thing work good. And whether you're, you know, typically you're playing lead, but whether you're playing in the section or not. And, and uh, you know, I would say the same thing about the guys, especially Tony, that we mentioned, would approach it the exact same way. So. For, especially for younger trumpet players coming up now, so important to, uh, to kind of look
1: at that in, in the, with those eyes I mean, and ears, more importantly. Yeah. I remember doing a date really quick, just yeah, silently, I played fourth trumpet, and it was one of the, the, the joy that I felt and the satisfaction I got was equal to it was Bob, Tony, Jim Hines, and me. I'm playing fourth. You, Keith, Birch, and George Flynn. And I was just playing fourth, and we hear the playback, and I, I thought I was doing my job, you know, just as I should. And I, I, the satisfaction I got from hearing that back and playing with you guys in the moment was every bit as great as playing lead trumpet. To me, the satisfaction is in, in the section is making, lifting the entire ensemble. It's not, can I hear myself enough in the mix? Or, right. you know, right. are cats digging me playing fourth trumpet? I mean, Absolutely. Great. Well, let's shift gears a little bit to something uh,
0: utterly interesting, the cha. uh, I'm not familiar with that. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, some of you may be wondering why we have a a (coughs) bottle of Smirnoff uh, behind us. But uh, Nick and I, mostly Nick, I simply (sighs) did the the introduction, but... uh, we did a video many years ago, and if you go to the Hippo Music website, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, you'll see a, a, a link to the art of the cha. And uh, Nick gives his uh, a lesson and, a, uh, and a, a bit of a historical retrospective, if you will, on the cha itself. Uh, in that video, we had uh, a bottle of Smirnoff there, and since then, we've had uh, many... Uh, uh, purveyors and uh, makers of spirits vie for your uh, services uh, from an endorsement standpoint. And currently, we're well, negotiations we're, with yes. Smirnoff. But uh, of course, we welcome others, Kettle One, Reagan, and so bonus, forth. So. But uh, yes, oh, needless to say. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so let's put that out there. Um, at any rate, uh, we've had a lot of fun with the art of the cha. Uh, there has been, uh, I, I guess you'd have to say, if you're going to talk about the cha, You'd have to talk about Conrad Gazzo and Maynard Ferguson mm-hmm. as guys who have uh, kind of and we're doing this tongue in cheek. But it's a it's a lot of fun. And uh, and you have uh, you've done it on national television. Let's see. I I was sitting right next to you when you did it on the uh, Tony, the broadcast of the Tony Awards wow. in 2010. Do what I can. You also did, I believe, on the David Letterman show with uh, the the. Uh, uh, how, to how to succeed in business. Also and, on the
1: Tony Awards the following year. With how to succeed. Yes, yeah, yeah. so so you've you've done one. everything you
0: can to bring it to the national consciousness. Huh. Uh, talk about the cha for a second and uh,
1: where that comes from.
0: Well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes, it comes. In all seriousness, it's funny. You know, uh, we had a lot of fun with it. I still have fun with it, but it's very much a serious. Um, historical thing for lead tremble players, right? Uh, It lost traction, I think, maybe into the early 60s, because there's some great recordings. Uh, Al Porcino with the Terry Gibbs band with Mel Lewis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you hear a few on some of those live records. It kind of lost, I hate to say popularity, because let's be honest. (laughs) But uh, much like lead tremble players think of style now as or even then, as doits, or kiss-offs, or uh, um, sometimes you'll see the squealy line down to a note, and you'll hear somebody go, That's a stylistic choice. Not one that I would choose, but that's a stylistic choice. Um, but it was a stylistic choice. Now, uh, because it isn't as prevalently used, I mean, when I started using it, yes, it's funny, and, but I think it's it's a, very actually, it's a very personally stylized thing. Gazzo did it, he did it a lot, you can hear it on the Sinatra records, some Dean Martin records, any of the, uh, the studio dates that he was playing lead on in the 50s, you, you can hear it occasionally. And it was always, in my opinion, appropriate for that era of music. I said that with a straight face, didn't I? Okay. Sorry, Scott. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Scott Wenholt loves it. I think my, my well, that, I, th- I don't know, I can't remember if I actually told this exact story on when we actually did the video, but um, when we started How to Succeed in Business with Daniel Radcliffe in 2011, um, it was a great band, and it was orchestrated. It was all swinging, and it was orchestrated by Doug Besterman, Uh, And it was uh, very much a Marty Page deck, deck deck-tet vibe. And uh, it was um, very, very swinging in that vein. And Scott said to me in the first rehearsal, you're not going to do that release thing, are you? (laughs) And I just looked at him and I went, oh, yes. And so... My joke with him was, I said, Scott, you, you know, when you were listening to Freddie and Woody and shedding the changes on all these great tunes in high school and college, I was sitting there playing major scales with a cha at the end of each one. <laughs> so you know, you studied music; I studied the history of interesting releases for lead trumpet players. But I think it's fully valid. I just think it's a it's something that should come back a little bit more when used properly. Yes. But yes, okay. Gaza was. Uh, as far as lead trumpet in big band and, and recording, he was kind of the purveyor of that. Maynard had a great one that we used a lot sometimes in the melodies that he would play in front of his band, or just even on solos, which I also really <laughs> dug. You know, a good cha is better than I, I can't even finish that sentence actually, yeah. but it's good.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: You can only do so much with, like, you know, Woody's harmonics and, you know, Freddie Hubbard's approach to harmony, him. But yeah, no. a good shot can I mean, really that stuff can gets bring old, it into the but, house. You know. Yeah.
1: Agreed. Agreed. I used to play Chow's on Prince's Band.
0: And I'm sure he liked it, right? I got a look
1: one time. Yeah. But I wasn't fired, so that was a good sign. If I, if I can share, I mean,
0: my favorite look has to be Kenny Seymour, who's a great uh, orchestrator, conductor, pianist. He was the music director of uh, Memphis and was... So kind to us, I mean he's great to, to say he, he gave us a, a long leash would be was the best. would be uh, probably somewhat of an understatement. but at any rate, uh Nick had this thing where he would do the cha, and there was something going on on stage with uh John Eric right John he was, Eric had a role, one of the actors who was great and uh, and he would end the tune, and then the band would cut off, and then all of a sudden you'd just hear this. Chot about two or three seconds later and i'll never forget when you you kind of kept pushing the envelope and it would be instead of a second it'd be two seconds and then three and then four seconds yeah. and kenny was such a kind gentleman to us and uh gave us uh, gave, he really gave us a lot of uh, space to have a lot of fun and and he knew that we were going to be professional and do a good job but when you pushed it to the farthest limit i remember we all we were all on stage, so we wouldn't actually be looking directly at the conductor. And Kenny would be in the middle of the band, so we'd have a video screen for each one, like little personal videos. And I remember hearing the cha like f- three or four seconds after the whole band had stopped. And I just remember Kenny's expression was,
2: "Yeah,
0: uh, but that was it." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I was yeah. like, "I'm thinking that's probably as far as we but can
1: go that with that." All I need to say is because, <laughs> like you said, we appreciated him and how great he was. That look was all I needed to know. It's okay, like, yeah, that's it. No more. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Four and a half seconds is the uh, the cutoff. <laughs> they stop rolling the wax after that point.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, for us especially as horn players, L.A. and New York are the two centers. There's great players in every city in the United States, Canada, Europe, without question. But for American players, typically, you if you if you're really going to try to make a mark. And not to say that you can't do it in in other cities because, I mean, I know great players in Pittsburgh. I know great players in Seattle and San Francisco, Chicago, certainly, Nashville, incredible players, Dallas, you know, great players everywhere. Uh, I think it ends up being the depth of of the field that you get in L.A. and New York. I mean, you go down your L.A., you go down to your 10th called lead trumpet player, it's probably still going to be really, really good. Um, One of the things that I find interesting is, especially with young players, a lot of players seem to gravitate towards going to, to Los Angeles. Um, I heard of, uh, my, uh, as, and you've known him for years now, my young son, Zach, who's uh, turning into a very formidable trumpet player himself. And, and uh, he was playing on a recital for somebody at uh, Manhattan School of Music last year. And I went and heard the recital and really, really phenomenal uh, young lead player. His name escapes me at the moment. And he was a student of Tony's uh, anyway, he moved to LA and he was a good example of this. Like mm-hmm. what, when you look at the two coasts and the and the difference between that, maybe even stylistically, but um, how do you perceive the situation? Do you ever think about, oh, I should have moved to LA? I know I do all the time, but uh, do you ever think, wow? Well, that's because you, you love New York. <laughs> <laughs> but do you ever think about that? And and also, you know, uh, what you know, what causes younger folks maybe to kind of gravitate to LA? I think there's a, a in terms of a total number, LA has more great lead trumble players than New York does, I think, I think that would be safe to say. Certainly, I think there's great players on both coasts. But anyway, long, long drawn-out uh, question. What's your thoughts
1: about that? Well, um, we're going to edit this right. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, the first thing that comes to mind is the joke that I use with, uh, uh, with kids. When, if I hear like a young, really good lead trumble player, a really good jazz player, I'm like, man, you sound great. Well, oh, thank you. I said, you know, you would kill it in L.A. <laughs> and they don't understand that I'm just trying to say, yeah, don't take my work, just move out there. But, uh, well, you know, honestly, and again, this actually goes back to my friend, uh, my eighth grade band editor, Steve. Steve and I still talk about this. We always try to, because he still constantly is finding new old records. And uh, I was just at his house Wednesday night, and he gave me four new. He he gave me some new records. He's like, hey, check this stuff out. And you're trying to. Uh, figure out that like he he plays his listening test with me, kind of like they do. And uh, is it is it downbeat? They do it right, right. Blind like, right you us. know, not only what coast, it's because sometimes not coast. Sometimes it's the great Derek Watkins, who is one of my favorite lead trumpet players, mm-hmm. period ever. Rest in peace. But what era, what coast, who's playing lead? <laughs> you know. And then if if I get it, it's like, all right. Well, who's on drums? Who's on lead out? But one of the things we always try to pinpoint is where in our opinion, or I don't want to lump him, him in on this and get him in trouble, but I'll use my, I'll say me. Because um, right in the 50s and into the 60s, and I have several examples of this, uh, you know, remember guys used to move coast to coast, right? You'd be in New York for a while, and you'd be like, oh, I want to change a pace. Move out to L.A. and do the studio stuff out there, the TV stuff out there. Got to love that, like, that was actually an option, right? It was, oh, this, you know, <laughs> no like, kidding, uh, right? I mean, First, of course, off the top of my list you know, was Porcino. All the great records he did out there in 50s and early 60s and then he went, ah, I'm going to move to New York. And then did all this great stuff out here and then left, went back there for a little bit, then came back and then said ah, I fell in love with a, a German woman. I'm just going to move to Germany and play lead in the radio band.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, that, make, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> like <laughs> Nowadays, you're imagining these options. But so I think because even though I only used one example, there was, not only, it, it was popular music of the time, which was the music that we play, but because of this transparency between the coasts, the time centers were and sound, actual conception of sound for not only lead trumpet, but I just mean horn players in general, were very similar. Hmm. In my opinion, through the 50s, through the 60s, into the early 70s. In my opinion, in the early 70s when it started to change was now, we're of course, now you're getting the new crop of generation of musicians. The popular music, of course, has changed by this point. And um, now we're listening uh, to uh, a record that just, uh, off the top of my uh, head, um, you know, Jack Doherty, mm-hmm. those Jack Doherty mm-hmm. records, and a record that I love. I mean... Uh, because Chuck Finley is one of my favorite drum players ever. Of course. Uh, Chuck's playing on this record, I think it's Class of 72, and uh, Paul Humanon, rest in peace, and, and the, Chuck and Paul were very good friends. Um, in 72, in, on this record, you can still hear a similar time center to what was happening in New York at that point. But as stuff started to change in the 70s, with the advent of uh, not only had the music changed, the demands of what we needed to do changed. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And when Jerry Hay, Mm -hmm. who was also like one of my heroes, came in Jerry, Gary, and Chuck in that section, doing all those, for decades, all those great records. Um, And I don't mean this in a bad way, of course, at all. I just, uh, in my opinion the time center got a little more compressed and a little more middle to front, whereas New York was still middle to back. Mm -hmm. And that to me is maybe mid to late 70s was when the divide started a little bit. And now I notice that the East Coast time center, which is what I hear more naturally, because I grew up on the East Coast, is now middle to middle back versus middle to middle front. Mm-hmm. now of course that's a very general statement I don't mean to to make it even more of a, your question even more broad than it was but um, and especially this is also colored by my experiences you know playing in, in big bands playing in the Vanguard band where our time center is a very specialized thing uh, if I'm playing in a, a salsa band or a mambo band of course my time center is not going to be middle to back it's going to be more on the front side of the beat But I've noticed that not only the time centers have changed in the past 30 to 40 years, sound concept has changed. Hmm. And I think uh, neither one is better or worse, it's just what you hear. I think the East Coast sound is a little more, uh, still a little more um, OE and sonorous. Whereas, and this could just be recordings, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. or the recording quality or compressing sounds, but uh, the West Coast sound is a little more slick sounding than we are. And I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. Meaning, mm-hmm. when I hear some of these records, because I, I still listen all the time, when I hear Wayne or Chuck or Gary play, I'm sitting there going, gosh, I, I wish <laughs> I could sound like that. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> So maybe this is just me being in denial saying, oh, you guys sound great doing that. Yeah, I, I don't like the way that sounds. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to this. You know, uh, I have many blind blind spots in my self-perception. But overall, I, I really just think the difference in the coast is, as, has really started those couple of decades ago, and it's really just more about the time center. But I think the reason I say more about the time center is not because these guys have yeah we have bad time or good time or they have bad time or good time it's the work- mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. l a has turned much more into a uh back then it was they were still recording a lot more than we were uh we had um you know studio bands and 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 doing stuff but the studio center was still became much more centered out there we were the more live thing- mm-hmm. and In a way, I still think that Mm is is kind of still the way it is. So I think that's a large part of it. Yeah, does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, and again, I'm prefacing this by saying, I mean no offense, because the the names I just mentioned are like some of my favorite terminal players on the planet.
0: No, I think uh, absolutely. I didn't uh, think there was any offense in in anything you just said. I think that uh, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, if you're in the studio all the time. And you're, that's the way you're listening. Cause I know that's, um, for me personally, like I've gotten a lot out of, you know, on my own projects, but just in general, I mean, when Rob Mouncey writes a chart, you get to play a chart of that quality, which is as good as anything that's ever been written. And you go in the booth and listen to that. That's a different feeling than playing in a Broadway show where you're kind of like, you know, you're evaluating how you're sounding. You're trying to sound your best, but you're not like having an opportunity to go in and and really evaluate it on a, as a second listening. You're only listening as yeah. a as a in a live perspective. So I think that I could see totally where, and I totally agree with all the things you just said. But I could see from a time perspective, especially, but also sound, but time in particular. Uh, when you're in the studio, there's no room for you know. I mean, you, especially when you're playing with a pop track that where there's there's no real uh, interpretation of where the eighth notes are or yeah. the quarter notes, and so I think I think that there's something to be said for that. When you're recording, you're listening to it. Uh, you, the level of evaluation is is going to cause you to react in a different kind of way.
1: And like actually, I mean, you just kind of touched on it. A lot of the recording now, right? Stuff is laid down, and you're playing on top of it i.e. you're not negotiating the time with the rhythm section, you're not playing live together, you're having to do what's already, you're laying something on top of what's already been done. In that case, you really have no choice. Right, Where you're going to put the time. You have to play with what's already pre-recorded.
0: Yeah, super good point. And I think, you know, from a creative standpoint, you could make a debate on that. I mean, there's certainly, you go hear the Vanguard band, there's a very organic feeling. It's as... It's as tight as anything I've ever heard, but it also feels like there's fluidity to it, you pull, know. Yeah. And it's it's in a, in the most positive. I mean, I love it. It's like makes me like, man, I just want to hear this all the time, you know. Yeah, but um, it's a lot of push and pull. Yeah. But it's but there's there's a fluidity to it that's uh, that's very cool. Um, well, Nick, man, I can't thank you enough for uh, being our guest this month oh, in November. I, you are, are times uh, up uh, already. <laughs> I could go on for another hour. I feel like, uh, <laughs> but but I, I do want to. Just kind of pick your brain a little bit about what's coming uh, what's coming next for Nick Marchion. What uh, I know I know on the Broadway front, you're doing uh, Holiday Inn right now, getting ready to do a Hello Dolly with Ben Midler, which I'm sure is gonna be huge uh, starting in the spring. Um, obviously more work with the Vanguard Orchestra. Probably the greatest gig you're ever gonna do will be the Hip Bone Big Band, December pretty 4th much. at Subculture. Is it you know, fair to say? Uh, yeah. yeah. What's on soundcheck? <laughs> But I'm thrilled that you could do that gig. Uh, I'm not sure not sure oh, what we'd do if you couldn't pleasure. do it. But but anyway, that aside, all kidding aside, um what's on what's on deck for you? What are you looking forward to uh next and uh, uh on deck what?
1: I did uh just one or two hits. Um uh, I wanna do a am uh, gonna do a quintet project uh, with Luis Bonilla. Oh great nice from player, Luis Bonilla. Phenomenal Apparently trombone player. I cannot get enough of trombone in my life that <laughs> as opposed to doing the standard, I'll play with a sax player, I have to choose a trombone player. Uh, But um, I had this idea of doing, I did a a gig down in Philadelphia with this uh, quintet, um, actually, especially pulling Luis in, who's in in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, doing the music of Thad Jones and some tunes that were not, that Thad wrote specifically for the big band, that are just, of course, such great melodies and... uh, Tunes in and of themselves that they would be great in a quintet uh form. So we're negotiating, doing uh some more gigs, and then doing a record of that. Oh, with, nice! Uh, I'll look forward to hearing that.
0: Yeah, That'll you know. be great. For those of you who don't know, Louis Bonilla, amazing trombone player, and got to get him
2: uh, in the well, chair have have one, one of these you days. You have <laughs> to have
1: one front man who can play jazz. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just play lots of chas and it'll be great. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure it, to be here, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great to see you, as always,
0: Nick. And, uh, and uh, once again, we will see all of you next time. Uh, just as a quick reminder, December 4th, we'll be at Subculture uh, in East Village uh, with the Hip Bone Big Band featuring Nick Marchion on lead trumpet. And uh, we thank all of you for uh, being with us. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we will see you in December on Bone to Pick.
1: Bye. Can I get more mixer?